So today I have um, quite a difficult subject to talk about, which is why uh, bad things happen to good people. In sort of Christian theological terms, this is often called the problem of evil. And um, it reminds me of a guy who, he was uh, mountain climbing, and he, he put his foot on some loose shale, he slipped, and uh, he almost fell down a precipice, but at the last minute he managed to grab onto a root that was sticking out of the cliff. And uh, terrified of what was going to happen, he cried out uh, to the heavens, is there anybody up there? And um, wouldn't you know it, a voice came out of heaven and said, trust me, let go of the root, everything will be fine. And the man thought for a second and then he said, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, this is what we, we, we're going to talk about today, why bad things happen to good people. I think it's a probably a bad title, but it was kind of a catchy title. Um, The question when it's posed to um, a Christian like myself sounds more like this. Stephen, how as a Christian can you justify your belief in the God of the Bible, who you claim is good and powerful and knows all things, how can you justify the fact that there is so much evil and suffering in the world that we live in. And this is a, a very, very difficult question. I want to read you a verse uh, from the Scriptures. This was penned by a man by the name of David. Uh, David knew much suffering in his life. Uh, he had a very hard life. And yet, if you read through the Psalms, many of which were written by David, you will find that this is a man that loved to extol or to lift up the goodness of God. He loved to tell others that God is good, despite the suffering that he had. And in uh, verse 8 of Psalm 34, he says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or the woman who trusts in him. So God is good. Um, I first want to say that I, I do understand the, the depth and complexity of the question. And so I hope that as I speak to you about some of the, the Bible's um, comments and the, the approach of the Bible to the, the problem of evil, you're not going to think that somehow I'm overlooking the complexity of the question, that I don't appreciate um, the broken heart with which this question is often asked. Um, it's a good question. It's a, it's a relevant question. Because the Bible has always taught, and Christians have always taught, that God is omnipotent. That means He's all-powerful. He can do anything. Our God is in the heaven, says the psalmist. He does whatever He pleases. He's omnipotent. But not only that, the Bible is also teaches and Christians have always taught that God is omniscient. Uh, omniscient, that means he has all knowledge. He knows everything. 
There is nothing hidden from his eyes, the Bible says. He knows everything, past, present, and future. And not only does he know the external circumstances of the universe, but he knows, the Bible says, the very hearts of men. He knows everything. And part of what that means is that this God has all wisdom. He is an infinitely wise God, as well as being infinitely powerful. And then the Bible says that in addition to being powerful and wise, infinitely so, he is also entirely good. We heard the words of David, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There was a a moment in uh, in the Old Testament, if you read the first five books of the Old Testament, you'll read a story in there when Moses uh, asks God to show him his glory. Kind of this intimate moment between God's prophet to the nation of Israel. He's alone, he's with God, he was called the friend of God, and he asks God to, he says, God, show me your glory, and God says to him, you can't see me face to face. No man can see God and live. God is too holy to set his eyes on evil and sinful man cannot be in the presence face to face with our holy God. We would be instantly destroyed by his infinitely holy power. And so he says to Moses, what I'll do is I will pass by you and using anthropomorphic language, that means using like human language to kind of describe God, he says, I will show you my back parts. And as he passes by Moses, this is how he declares himself to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. That's how God declares himself to be. That's how he introduces himself to mankind. He says, I am gracious, I am merciful, I am patient, I am abounding in goodness, and I am abounding in truth. This is who he says he is. In another psalm, Uh, David exclaims, he says, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Are you trusting in this God today? David says, if you're trusting him, his goodness will be shown in your life. And so God is infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, and infinitely good. He's a good God. And yet, this is where the controversy begins, isn't it? This is where philosophically it becomes difficult. Because if God is all-powerful, and He is all-wise, and He is entirely good, then surely sin and suffering would not exist in the world. Because He could have prevented it. So I understand the problem. And it was uh, a philosopher, I don't know, for those of you who are uh, studying at the university, which is most of you, I guess, I don't know if you've had to study any philosophy in any of your courses, but if you do, you'll run across a man by the name of David Hume, who was a great skeptic. And it was David Hume that perhaps... um, 
vocalized or framed this particular philosophical problem the best in his generation. And Hume said, because evil exists, God is either not all-powerful, being unable to prevent the entrance of evil into the world, or he is not all-good, being unwilling to prevent the evil of entrance into the world. So you see the point that David Hume is making. Evil exists, therefore God cannot exist. And so I, I do get the, the philosophical dilemma that's on our hands here. I want you to notice something as we begin, that in David Hume's argument, he comes into the argument with a presupposition. A presupposition is a belief that you hold as axiomatic, a belief that you think is self-evident. Everyone believes this. And so we don't have to argue about that. We can stand on common ground and we can argue from there. What is this presupposition that he comes into his argument with? Evil exists. He just presupposes the existence of evil. And then based on that, he argues God simply cannot exist. Certainly, certainly not the God of the Bible. And if we're honest, I think everyone here would admit that we do resonate with that. I mean, there is a sense in which we know that evil exists. Every human being has a sense of good and evil. And when we see something that is evil, we recognize it instantly as evil. I don't think anybody here would argue with David Hume on his presupposition that evil exists. When we hear of rape, when we hear of murder, when we hear of young girls being uh, kidnapped by Boko Haram and sold into sexual slavery, when we hear of corruption in business or in government, something in us, no one has to tell us that that is wrong, that those things are evil. We know they are evil. Something in our hearts knows that there is such a thing as objective morality. And when I say objective morality, certain things are objectively wrong. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. It doesn't matter what time you live in. Certain things are wrong and they always will be wrong. Something in the human heart knows that, that morality is not relative. It's not contextual. We, we, this is not just some social contract that we've made amongst ourselves, that we've decided that, okay, well, let's all just agree that rape is wrong or murder is wrong. I mean, in your heart, you know that's not the case. We know that there is an objective standard of morality that stands above the world. It governs the world, and everywhere you go, it's the same. And that, is, that flies in the face of what the atheists will tell you. Because atheists have to argue that truth is, it's, uh, it's functional. That morality is functional. It's, it's, it's utilitarian. We just decide as a group what we're going to accept as good and bad. But really there is no such thing as good and evil in an atheistic worldview. Everything just is the way it is. I mean, it's just, we're just a big accident of nature. There is no such thing as objective evil. 
Still, every human being knows that certain things are objectively wrong. How do we explain that? Everyone knows it's wrong to rape a child. And I don't care where you live. I don't care what society you're in. I don't care what generation you live in. That is always wrong. And the interesting thing is that David Hume was willing to admit that. He came into his argument with the presupposition that evil exists. He knew evil existed. And then what's interesting is based on that, he then built his argument that God does not exist. There have been various attempts from a faith perspective to try to solve the philosophical problem of evil. Uh, One of the most famous attempts to solve the problem was uh, made by a guy called uh, Harold Kushner. He is uh, an American rabbi. And in 1981, he wrote um, probably the most famous book on the subject uh, called uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And what precipitated his writing that book was the death of his son. Uh, He had a son named Aaron who died from a, a disease called progeria, which is an early aging syndrome. And they watched their son age before their eyes and die young and it it shattered their hearts and from a faith perspective as a rabbi he tried to make some sense of of this how could he explain how god could allow this to him and to his son and and at the end of the day harold kushner's answer at the end of his book the, the, the conclusion that he comes to is that god does not have all power to intervene in the world whenever he wants to. God has, is, is limited somehow within the world. In certain respects, Kushner said, God is like um, a spectator at a rugby game or a soccer game. Do You get so frustrated when your team is not playing the way you want them to and they're losing, but you're not allowed to step onto the field and actually change the circumstances. You have to just watch as it all unfolds. Now, I'm going to say, as much as I sympathize with Harold Kushner and the tremendous heartbreak that he must have felt watching his son die, his answer is not acceptable. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not even what the Old Testament teaches, which, as a rabbi, he should have accepted. But now that still leaves us with the problem, doesn't it? And we must try to find as good an answer as we can to this problem. How can God allow such suffering in the world? And as I'm going to try to make as much sense of it as I can before you, I'm mindful of the words of one of the greatest preachers of all time. He had the biggest church in England in the 18th, uh, 19th century. His name was um, Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said this uh, to the young preachers that he was training. He said, remember in every congregation there are broken hearts. And I, I know that there are people sitting in this room here today and you sit here with a broken heart. Maybe you've been raped. Maybe you were abused as a child. Maybe you've watched a loved one suffer and you've been incapable of helping them. You know where your heart is broken and the suffering that you've had. 
And I'm aware that, that that's reality. I've had my own suffering in my life. And so what I want to try to do is I'm going to try from a personal perspective to share some things from the scripture that have helped me personally, that have brought comfort to me through the struggles that I've had in my own life. Obviously, I can't tell you what to believe. I can't make you believe that God is good. I can't make you believe that Jesus is his son, that he is an all-sufficient savior to all who come to him. I can't make you believe that God has his reasons for the things that he allows. But I believe these things with all my heart, and I can only pray that as I share some of the perspectives that have helped me in my life, something will bring comfort and peace to your heart in the suffering that you have. And in, in that respect, I'd like to actually just bow our heads and, and pray because I, I can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can minister to your heart. So let's, let's pray that he will do that. Heavenly Father, we commit the rest of our afternoon together here to you. And God, we ask that you would come in the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would comfort our hearts with the truth of your goodness. That you would heal broken hearts here today, Lord. Because God, we can't do that. Only you can do that. In Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that I, I do have to say is that if, you, if you're expecting me to give you the answer to suffering and evil in the world, I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you. I, I can't give you the answer. No one can give you the answer. To, to a great degree, it is a mystery. But we are called to a life of faith. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. That describes the Christian life. And that doesn't mean that you check your brain in at the door, that you're not allowed to think for yourself. That, that doesn't mean that we can't learn and study and, and get to know God's word and, and get to know him and his character and his being and try to get some answers to the questions we have in life. We certainly can do all of those things. But what it means to walk by faith and not by sight is this. That when you get to those moments in your life where you do not have an answer and you cannot explain what is happening to you and no matter how much you have tried to do your best and tried to pray and try to do what's right and try to do what's wise yet still things are, are still falling apart and your heart is breaking that in moments like that in life to walk by faith means this you still believe that God is who he says he is in his word. Even if you can't reconcile it. Even if you can't understand it. You just make a decision. God, I'm going to trust your word. You are good. And of everything that I'm going to say to you today about dealing with evil and suffering and, and trying to understand it from a biblical perspective, actually the whole argument comes back to that. That is the most important thing I can say to you today. Get to know God and his word. 
And He will convince you. He will overpower the questions of your heart with His grace. So that you can walk by faith and not by sight. Now before you, you write that off, if you are not a committed Christian here, and I'm very glad you're here, you're welcome. Before you write that off as an insane way to live your life, as, as something that actually makes no sense, that no rational person would live like that, just remember this, that what the Bible calls us to, the faith that it calls us to, is not a blind faith. You know, blind faith is is believing something when you have absolutely no evidence for it. And that's just foolishness. The faith that the Bible calls us to is not blind faith. There is uh, abundant evidence for the truth of the Bible. And we can look in many places for that, not least of all in the created order. Some of you were at David Block's presentation on Sunday night where he he showed us the most incredible photographs of just the outer limits of the universe that we see. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That his invisible attributes can be seen. Notice how that Paul is, is, is framing that argument. God is invisible. We cannot see him with our eyes. And yet his attributes are displayed in the created order. What attributes? Even his eternal power? That the created order shouts out to us that God is alive and that he is exceedingly powerful. And his Godhead or his divinity. The very fact that we live in a creation, the very fact that you live in a body that is fearfully and wonderfully made, declares day after day the existence of God. Maybe you've never been challenged with this before, but I've got to be straight with you. This is what the Bible says you know there is a God. You can deny it. You can call yourself an atheist. You are fooling yourself. You are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The Bible says you know there's a God. I only became a Christian when I was 23 years old. And that was one of the biggest um, admissions that I had to make. I, I had to get to a point in my life where my life was such a mess that I had to admit, you know what? I'm just fooling myself. I actually do believe there's a God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And as we wrestle with the question, I want to present three biblical arguments or truths around the problem of evil. And again, I'm not trying to tell you what to believe. These are three things that I've picked out because they have made a difference to me in my life. And I can tell you from personal experience, it is possible to face suffering and evil and hardship in life with peace and joy in your heart. That may seem totally foreign to you. I promise you it's possible. It doesn't mean you don't shed tears. It doesn't mean you don't feel the burden of it when you're in 
when you're in a hardship, but underneath that, there is a foundation that you can build your life on that gives you a stability, a hope for eternity, a peace of heart, knowing that even though I don't understand this, I know it's going to work out in the end. That's something that that the atheist cannot give you. He can't offer you that. It's hopeless. God doesn't want you to be hopeless. He wants you to live with hope. So three things. First, um, given the existence of evil, how can the God of the Bible really exist? Firstly, I want to show you the impossibility of the contrary. That if God does not exist, nor can evil. I'll say that another way. If evil exists, then God exists. Now that's the, the diametric opposite of what David Hume said. And I'm going to show you how that is so. Secondly, very briefly, I'll talk about the origin of evil, that God is held out in the Bible to not be culpable for evil, the entrance of evil into the world. And thirdly, that the Bible then does give various answers to this question around why God allows evil and suffering, how he uses it for his own purposes. And I will give you a a, a little list of those. So let's look at the first one, the impossibility of the contrary. See, the truth of the matter is that only the existence of God can account for this conversation. If God didn't exist, this conversation is meaningless. If there is no God, then there is no absolute moral standard. Yes, man can decide his own morality. He can have a social consensus around what is good and what is good for a society or not, but there is no absolute moral standard that is binding on all human beings of all time. There is no such thing as absolute good or absolute evil if God does not exist. In um, 1985, I think it was, there was a great debate between It's actually one of the great Christian debates of all time, Christian atheist debates. It was between a guy called Dr. Greg Bonson uh, and uh, Dr. Gordon Stein. Uh, Greg Bonson was probably the the greatest apologist of his generation, if not of all time. Uh, You can go and download the debate on YouTube. And Gordon Stein was the, the head of the American Atheist Society. And they met at a university just like this. And they debated, and in uh, Gordon Stein's introduction, his introductory comments, it wasn't his main argument, but he started listing all sorts of problems that he thinks that, that Christians have philosophically, and he just threw out the problem of evil, and then carried on with his discussions. And so uh, Greg Bonson didn't take the bait, but in his, in his closing statements at the end of the debate... Greg Bonson then addressed this little throwaway comment that Gordon Stein had made about the problem of evil. And I'm going to read you what Greg Bonson said. Dr. Stein wants to know about the problem of evil. My answer to the problem of evil is this. There is no problem of evil in an atheist universe because there is no evil in an atheist universe. Since there is no God, there is no absolute moral standard and nothing is wrong. The torture of little children is not wrong in an atheist's universe. It may be painful, but it is not wrong. It is, it is morally wrong in a theistic universe, in a, a Christian universe. And therefore, there is a problem of evil of perhaps a, a philosophical or emotional sort. 
the answer to the problem of evil. Um, but philosophically, the answer to the problem of evil is that you don't have an absolute moral standard of good by which to measure evil in an atheistic universe. You can only have that in a theistic universe. And therefore, the very posing of the problem presupposes my worldview rather than his own. God has good reasons for the evil that he plans or allows. He has good reasons for it. And that, of course, was the great error that David Hume made. Because David Hume came into the argument presupposing the existence of evil, but his own worldview could not account for his presupposition. That isn't how we live, is it? I mean, we don't live our lives as if there is no such thing that's objectively wrong. I mean, you, you couldn't, we, society couldn't function unless every human being had an innate sense of right and wrong. Every relationship is informed by that. You, you couldn't have a relationship with anyone without constantly monitoring your behavior and your words through this internal moral monitor. Now, how do we explain that? Where does that come from? Well, as a Christian, I believe that comes from the fact that the God who is the source of all morality, He is the explanation of the moral order, and He sustains the universe according to His moral order. He has made human beings in His own image. You are created in the image of God. That's why you know the difference between right and wrong. We all share this common sense of moral behavior. And perhaps that's never been better summarized than in the Ten Commandments themselves. Just look at the Ten Commandments. You and I, we know it's wrong to murder. We know it's wrong to commit adultery. We know it's wrong to disobey our parents. We know it's, it's wrong to steal or to lie, to hurt other people, to lie behind their backs. We, we all know that. So if we accept the existence of good and evil, which we cannot possibly deny, then we must presuppose the existence of God. Now, <laughs> I understand that's not, a, that's not a, a, an emotionally pleasing answer. But we can't avoid making that point. The very fact that you want to point your finger at someone about evil presupposes the fact that someone's there. And so we can't, we can't solve the problem by just pushing God out of the way. We have to find the answer elsewhere. Now, why is this important? I've taken some time on this because it's, it, it, it leads us to the place where we will find the answers or whatever answers God offers us. If you're going to take the existence of good and evil, if you're going to accept that there is good and that there is evil, you are getting that out of a Christian worldview. You can't steal good and evil out the Bible and then throw the rest of the Bible away and say, I'm not interested in it, and then argue from a perspective. No, if you're going to take one concept from Scripture, then you have to take the totality of Scripture and see what else it says about God. Does that sound fair? Yes. 
Now, I can tell you, I got to a point in my life where I had to start to admit, okay, God, that's fair. I can't take bits and pieces from you and then live my life on those. If I'm going to submit to you, I have to submit to everything you reveal about yourself in your word. Have you done that? So, we go to Scripture. The first thing that we see in Scripture that God says about uh, the problem of evil and our questioning His righteousness, questioning His goodness, is that God has laid out certain boundaries to our thinking. And again, this is not going to be popular in an atheistic view or in a sort of Western world where autonomy and and self, you know, power of the of the individual is exalted. This is not going to, you know, tickle the ears of people who just want to hear what they want to hear. The Bible says, "I'm going to." God says, "I'm going to lay out the boundaries of your thinking, and you are not to go outside of those boundaries." There are certain things that I have revealed, and there are certain things that I have not revealed. You know. The, it's a humbling fact that God makes it quite clear to us in His Word that He is under no obligation to explain everything to us. He doesn't owe us anything. And in fact, He never even pretends to do so. You just go and read the story of, of, um, of Joseph and the hardships that that young man had. You go and read the, the story of Job. You've got to read chapters 38 to 40 of, of the book of Job. Job has all these accusations and all these questions against God. And God appears to him at the end of that book. And, Job, and, and, he, and he basically just says to Job, you, you need to shut your mouth, my boy, because you don't know who you're dealing with. And Job says, I've, I've spoken once with my mouth. I will not speak again. I cover my mouth now. I repent in dust and ashes. When he sees the glory of God. Guys, we, we see such a small sliver of reality. And God says, no, you walk by faith and you, and you don't walk by sight. I've told you in my word that I am good and that I can be trusted. You read Paul's comments in the book of Romans, chapter 9, where he's anticipating objections to the doctrine of predestination. But God's unfair if he does that. And what's Paul's answer? Does he try to explain it? No, he just says, who are you, O man, to answer against God? Shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, what have you made? Shall the clay argue with the potter? Again, I mean, well, how long have I been talking here? I haven't given you the answer that you're looking for, but this is the answer that Scripture gives us. We are to trust God. And we are to be humble before Him. And yet there are, of course, some explanations in Scripture as to why God does allow evil. He does show us certain principles. They don't answer everything, of course not, but they do give us some comfort First thing that we see is that God is not the origin of evil. Evil entered the universe first in the angelic ranks when, when there was an angelic rebellion against God. And then through the temptation of a fallen angel named Satan, 
um, human beings themselves became tempted and fell into sin. And the Bible says, this is what Paul says in the book of Romans, that therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin. Why is there suffering in the world? One of the answers the scriptures give us is because it is, um, because through the entrance of, of sin, death came into the world. Corruption came into the world. And not only do we die physically as human beings and get sick and, and suffer and feel pain because of the entrance of sin, but the whole creation was subjected to futility. Paul says that the creation that we live in now is a broken, groaning creation that is looking forward to the resurrection of the sons of God. When the creation itself will be restored to the beauty and peace which God made it in. Now, I, I know if you're philosophically trained, that doesn't answer all the questions. I understand that. Because we can just take a step back and say, well, why didn't God prevent the fall? Well, we don't have the answers to those questions. But God makes it quite clear in his word. He is not culpable for evil. And then lastly, various reasons he gives us, things that he uses suffering for. Firstly, we see that God's plans do include evil. And they do include suffering, but his motive for doing so is always entirely good. You look at the life of a man like Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. He suffered in a jail. He then was uh, bought, as a, uh, bought as a slave first, then suffered in jail for many years. He had a life of suffering, and yet, at the end of his life, when his brothers came, they didn't recognize him to buy grain, he was now the head of the nation of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth. His brothers came before him and he eventually reveals himself to them and they get petrified that he's now going to take revenge for what they did to him 25 years earlier. And this is what he says to them. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see that? God was in what happened. And it was an evil thing. It was part of God's plan that that happened. But God's motive was entirely good. So sometimes when evil things happen and evil uh, uh, men or women perpetrate evil acts, yes, God is sovereign, but God's purposes are entirely good. Of course you can't understand that. Of course I can't explain that to you because I'm not God. But this is one of the things that God asks you to take on faith. That his motive is always good. We see it in the life of Job, but we see this especially in the life of Jesus himself. On the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching to the Jews who uh, just shortly before that had been shouting out, crucify him, crucify him to Jesus. He's preaching to the same people and he says this to them. Men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Do you hear that? Jesus was delivered to the Jews and to the Romans by the determined foreknowledge and purpose of God. This was God's plan. 
In fact, he was called the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan that this should happen. But listen to the words of Peter. He says, you have taken by lawless hands. How can it be that this is what God wanted to happen? This is part of God's sovereign plan. And yet the hands that did it are called lawless hands. There is this, there is this antithesis in scripture, this balance that we just have to accept on faith. God says, my purposes and my motives are always good. And yet I will hold those who commit evil fully responsible for what they've done. And there will be justice. Secondly, God uses a hardship for discipline. For those of you in the room who are born-again Christians, you know what this is. There is no born-again Christian that does not get disciplined by God. If you don't get disciplined, you're not, a, you're not a child. And God uses hardship to discipline his sons and his daughters. But why does he do it? He, do, he does it so that in the end, it, it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It's not pleasant while you're going through it. But he uses it to discipline us. And I'm grateful that he does. Because I don't want to be the same man that I am today. I've got all sorts of inconsistencies in my character. And immaturity. And sinful conduct and and habits. and, And I want God to keep working in my life. I don't look forward to the discipline. But I embrace it when I come. When it comes I say Lord thank you. You love me enough to work on my character. Hallelujah. Um. Here's another one. He says he uses um, hardship and suffering to test our faith and to produce patience. James says, count it all joy when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There is a, a developing of character that God does through hardship. Uh, keeping you loose from the world. The Bible says, whoever loves the things of this world does not have the love of God in him. Hardship keeps us loose from the things of this world. It it keeps us from giving our hearts to the things that our flesh so wants to throw itself into. It's a mercy. It keeps you close to Him. It keeps you calling on His name. Punishment for sin of those who reject Him. And then, of course, God has promised to comfort the church by His Spirit. We always have the Spirit with us to comfort us, both within us and between us as believers. We know the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We can face dangers and trials and struggles with a sense of joy and peace that the world simply cannot understand. They cannot understand it because the Spirit of the living God is doing it in us. He gives us wisdom. Wisdom, when you face a trial... He says, if you ask for wisdom and you ask in faith, I'll give it to you. He's promised to walk with us through every trial of life. And then, of course, there's the blessing of prayer. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in all things, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And then what? The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. What an incredible promise. So for those of you whose hearts are broken here today and you've got a struggle, can I ask you, have you gone alone into your bedroom, closed the door, and poured out your heart to God? Have Have you told Him about your heartbreak and your struggle and your suffering and you don't know what to do? 
Peter says this, he says, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Do you know God cares for you? And then we see the rectoral justice of God in the book of Revelation. Rectoral justice simply means this, that at the very end of time, we hear the saints singing, just and true are your ways, O Lord God Almighty. If you're a Christian here, you're going to sing that one day. Just and true are your ways, Lord God Almighty. On that day, my friends, there will be no one who accuses God of wrongdoing, who accuses Him of unfairness, who points their finger at God and said, what you allowed wasn't fair, it wasn't right. There will be no one who accuses God on that day. We will fall before Him and we will say, God, you are good and we are sorry, God, for ever questioning you. And then lastly, I want to close with a a gospel perspective on, on all this. The greatest thing that won my heart to worship and serve this God, even in the midst of a life of struggle and suffering, was that He Himself did not stand aloof from a world of suffering and watch it unravel. No, He came down in the person of the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He was born in a human body and He took upon Him, listen to me, the very worst of it. You will never suffer as Jesus suffered. Never. He did not stand far away looking on the world. He came into it. He was born as a man, fully a man. He suffered every temptation you've ever suffered. And then he went to the cross and he took your sins upon himself so that you could be forgiven. He didn't have to do that. He was innocent. But in his love for you, the Bible says in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. And when I see that broken, bleeding body hanging on that tree, paying for all of the filthy, disgusting things that I've done in my life so that I could be washed clean and forgiven, every single accusation against God is dissolved in His mercy. I might not have given you the answer that you wanted here today, but I'm telling you, you will find your answer at the foot of the cross where Jesus died for sinners just like you. And then Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And there he is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for those who receive him. Maybe you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've had pain in your heart and you've never been able to reconcile the fact that God has allowed all this, but maybe something's happened in your heart here today where you are willing to let go of your arguments and trust Him. 